0: This is a Village Soundcast Network original production.
1: Hello, and welcome to Lends Me Your Ears, the movie podcast that takes a look at new films in theaters or available on streaming services and compares them to similar films from years gone by. My name is Stephen Cook, and I'm an arts writer with the Chronicle Herald here in Halifax.
0: Hi, I'm Karsten Knox. I write a blog called Flaw in the Iris. You can find it at halifaxbloggers.ca. And today we're going
1: to take a spooky and scary trip through the world of British horror films, past and present, inspired by some recent offerings available online, Same Maud and his house. and we'll be right back after this to tempt you with some sinister details.
0: So, Stephen, here we are, and I'm sure regular listeners will be able to tell our voices sound a little different today. It's because we're back in the studio together. <laughs> I I know. Just, it's so thrilling uh, here at CKDU 88.1 FM. Uh, oh, and we should mention that uh, the... The, re- the radio station is having its sustainer drive this month March from the 11th to the 20th
1: yes uh, we are back in the studio and of course the timing is, it couldn't be better for CKDU to have its sustainer drive as programmers are coming back in to either do their live shows or work in the studio outside of regular office hours and uh, it's, it's a real treat to be back in the same room and CKDU sustainer drive is happening March 11th to 20th looking for the support of its listeners now this show airs on Tuesday, March 9th at 5.30 p.m. If you're listening on the radio. If you're listening live. It also uh, should show up in your podcast platforms on the same day, but of course you could be listening to this at any time. But if you are listening within the dates of March 11th to 20th, you can go to www.ckdu.ca backslash donate and uh, you can figure out how to be a sustainer. And that just basically means that you can either... Give some money to CKDU to show you support either in a lump sum or do what I do. I, 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 uh, donate a sum every month and it gets spread out over the course of the year and, uh, it goes a long way to, to keeping, uh, keeping the lights on, keeping the, the amps powered up and. Keeping the the mic socks on the microphones and all that stuff. It's there's a lot of uh, bibs and bobs that need to be looked after here at CKDU, uh, and as well as our wonderful staff that needs supporting. And a lot of it comes from viewer support. And of course, it's been such a weird year with everybody kind of locked up and shut in. And and um, you know now. We're, we're, we're getting back up to speed, and uh, of course, uh, public support is always, uh, always appreciated here at CKDU uh, for the multitude of diverse programming that we have. Not just this show, but all the shows, all the music shows, the current affairs shows, and uh, all the groups that get to have their voice spread through the community, through the airwaves, thanks to CKDU.
0: And today, our show is about British horror, which uh, I have to admit, I I knew uh, I'd seen something. Obviously, I'd seen The Wicker Man, which may be like the granddaddy of British horror films, uh, and I'd seen... Uh, you know some of the Hammer horror, for instance, which is a, you know, obviously the studio from the fifties and sixties and seventies, and I guess they've been revived to do more feature films with a with a horror, creepy thriller kind of bent. But uh, we're we're going to talk about first to start with two very recent British horror films. Uh, one is called Saint Maud, and one is called His House. Now, the Saint Maud, written and directed by Rose Glass, it is on demand right now, and it is. A amazing, terrific uh, chilling picture uh, where the story of Maude, played by Morfid Clark, and we learn isn't actually her real name, but she's that's what she goes by. She is a home care nurse working for a private service in a small seaside town in the UK. Her client, Amanda, played by the always excellent Jennifer Ely, is a former dancer living in a gothic pile up on top of a hill. Maude is deeply God-fearing, but uh, hasn't entirely managed her own pride in relationship to her feeling of having a mission. She is sure that God has a path for her, uh, but that hasn't been clear until now. And so she's convinced that she has been brought to Amanda to save her soul, to make her see God's light before the cancer in Amanda's spine takes her life. She knows she's on the right track because she feels the Holy Spirit inside of her. And it ch- it's like a channel to ecstasy. Uh, And she's a, she's a troubled woman, and there can be no doubt of that. But the film refuses to play its hand as to whether Maude is a conduit to genuine supernatural vision or the host to a growing psychosis. Glass does a great job of running these parallel possibilities for the audience. I had my take on it. Uh, I'm interested to hear what you think, Stephen. Um, But uh, the narrative did keep me guessing as to whether or not, you know, this is actual religious vision or is it uh, some kind of delusion? And uh, yeah, yeah, It's, it's uh it, I you know I, I think by the end most people will have a sense of where it's going but um, yeah Stephen what did you make of it
1: yeah I I thought this was a remarkable film uh, Morphid Clark uh, who plays Maud is is terrific and Jennifer Ely is always uh, great to see such a wonderful actor and uh the the I mean, she's a dancer who can't dance and they do a bit of a dance between the two of them as, um, Morfid tries to save her soul before she passes into the great beyond. At one point she prays and tells God, it's like, I, I, I think you'll be seeing this one soon. Uh, (laughs) she's trying to pair, pave the way. And, uh, Jennifer Ely is, is her character. Amanda is very headstrong and, and doesn't want to cave into, um, into Maud's desires and so I really enjoy the relationship between the two of them at one point uh, a friend of Amanda's uh, shows up just you know to check in on her and then says she's getting dangerously Norma Desmond and and, <laughs> and, and that's which is a great line I obviously a reference to Sunset Boulevard she's she's locked up in her house and she doesn't go out and uh, you know has all the remnants of her past glories around her posters from her dance uh, uh, performances and so on and 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 then into her life comes Maud and uh this battle of, of will starts. And yeah, the the film that I most often thought about while it was unfolding was Spider by David Cronenberg. Oh um, yeah, sure, sure. Where uh it's basically a, a portrait of of a man suffering from delusions and, and brought on by psychosis, probably schizophrenia. Uh and and I feel like Maud is in the same kind of um Zone. Basically, she's she's uh, looking for salvation by trying to help others find it, but uh, her connection to the the heavenly hosts uh, is uh, is certainly suspect. Yeah,
0: <laughs> and that uh, that's kind of what we have to go on until it it kind of gets to its conclusion. Yeah, and the special effects make it very compelling if we're seeing things through Maude's eyes eyes that that this is her experience, you know? And I've been genuinely uh, dubious of... The films that sensationalize the experience of mental illness for the sake of thrills, for horror, but uh, the ambiguity here, whether Maude is experiencing these visions or in the grip of of some kind of psychotic break, doesn't preclude compassion for her. So that's one of the things I think the film does very well. It's like we are on— Mod's side, for the most part, I think, on the film. And the film keeps us engaged with Mod's perspective in a way that makes her feel someone, if not entirely sympathetic, certainly a little piteous. Uh, and either way, I think that... Uh, it gives us plenty of time to sit with the character, see what she's seeing and think about how we might behave if we were in her shoes, which I think, you know, as uh, Roger Ebert always said, you know, film is an empathy machine. And I think that's what this film does. I mean, it, it, it's terrifying, but it's also, also hugely empathetic. So, yeah, I, I really, I loved it. And oh, and Morford Clark, as you said, is so good. She, I knew her, I don't really know her work so well, but I did see last year the personal history of David Copperfield, where she plays a dual role. She's so good there, and she's entirely convincing here as well. I get the, the feeling how much she wants to do good, but she's, she's just in the grip of her, her own demons and, and, uh, and, you know, and has, has moments, real, a real, uh, weakness, real, vulnerability that you can't help but feel for her
1: yeah i'm reminded of a a german film which i am quite fond of and is nearly impossible to find anywhere i have a korean dvd that's semi pan and scan called brother of sleep by thomas wilsmeyer the director of uh, stalingrad is his best known film but uh, he made this other film called brother of sleep which i saw at wormwoods and it's about a a a Bavarian musician slash composer, organist, uh, in, I don't know, the 1700s, 1600s thereabouts. And he has these visions of ecstasy that he translate in, into this impossible music that he pounds out on the local church's organ, much to the consternation of the, the villagers. And, but he has these moments of religious ecstasy, um, And again, you have to wonder if it's the voice of the divine speaking through him, or is there something wrong with his brain chemistry? And uh, this is definitely, you know, uh, on a similar path. Um, And and Maud, we really feel for her because we know that uh she is in a bit of a spiral through the course of this film and and there are there are moments that are genuinely creepy and horrifying, and it does qualify as I mean Brother Asleep, I wouldn't call a horror movie and uh, and spider, I wouldn't necessarily call a horror movie, but here um you know because her what she thinks is this uh voice of the divine, which happens to be Welsh interestingly enough uh, that she hears the voice of god it's it's Welsh, which i I, I thought was a great touch um you know that the, there's there's a, a a scary path that she goes down as we you know even if we wonder you know is it the voice of god is it something else is it uh just her own mind playing tricks on her and uh of course uh, the the film kind of leaves that open a little bit for you but uh it's 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 not an ambiguous film, but it but it is a, a challenging and and also a rewarding one ultimately.
0: Oh yeah, for sure, and I love the, I love the the symbolism of cigarettes in the film and how she uh, Maude looks at people who smoke and and the way the camera lingers on people lighting cigarettes. You know, I think we could do a whole episode on the changing <laughs> role of cigarette smoking in film. You know, at one time. I think cigarettes symbolize sexiness and danger and, you know, all those kinds of things that basically the cigarette companies wanted people to think about their product. Where now I think cigarettes mean sin. They mean, they mean also a certain amount of weakness. Like you're, you're, it's an, it's a symbol of addiction and, and, uh, suffering to to a lot of people. So anyway, I, I yeah, that's something I would recommend if people watch St. Maud, watch out for because I think there's a lot going on with with smoking in this film. Yeah, they used to be tough and sexy. <laughs> and <laughs> yeah. then not anymore. Yeah. Um so I think now we should we should move on. Uh yeah. unless, unless you have more to say about St. Maud, I think we should definitely move on to his house.
1: Yeah. Definitely check out St. Maud. It's uh, I believe you you have to go to um a service like maybe cineplex uh, and watch it online I don't think it's on one of the regular streaming services yet but keep an eye out for it uh, if you'd rather wait for it to show up on Amazon Prime or Netflix it's it's definitely worth watching and uh, and and uh, some rewarding performances for sure
0: yeah now speaking of Netflix that's where you'll find his house directed by Remy weeks uh, and uh, it's a horror but initially the horror comes from the way the English system treats a couple uh, boy a bull and real majeure played by, and excuse my pronunciation, but I believe it's Sopi Dirisu and uh, Wunmi Mosaku. They're refugees who've escaped from South Sudan. They've made the dangerous journey across the ocean and they've lost their daughter on the way. Uh, they've been released from detention to a barely habitable home. Uh, it's a row house in some. Council estate shown around, and they're shown around by a landlord played by Matt Smith, who encourages them to uh, be one of the good ones. So you, you can tell, I mean, the racism and xenophobia is writ large here. Now, his house forefronts a little humor, which is appreciated, but the film is unblinking in its depiction of the rough end of British society. Even even the the black kids that this these this African couple come come upon are are totally xenophobic and unwelcoming. It's uh, it's not long before. A bulb begins to notice there's more wrong with their home beyond the shoddy electrical, the holes in the walls and the insect infestations. It's haunted, but the scares are entirely specific to the couple and what they've been through to get them there. Uh, we learn about the supernatural folklore uh, from the couple's Sudanese heritage and their faith and belief and cultural sp- Specificity, specificity of all of this is really interesting and you know it's it's using horror to as an allegory for uh trauma and for uh you know guilt in a way that is so cleverly done and and i think it absolutely delivers on multiple levels i was so impressed with his house
1: yeah this was a real surprise i mean i, I you know I'd, I'd seen an early trailer for it and it looked amazing just from that the this was something that had something new to offer in terms of horror films and and in, in terms of its uh, thematic reach. And uh, it swings to the fences and scores. It really does. Uh, this is, uh, you know, the, the, the trauma of the refugee experience of escaping unbelievable real life horrors and uh, having them follow you along along your way is um, is all too palpable. It's it's it's. Uh, sadly too much of a reality for so many people and uh this this film you know could conceivably touch a nerve with people that have been through that kind of experience i imagine that this would you know the, the terror i mean it is terrifying but if anyone is if you've experienced anything remotely close to what uh bol and riel have to go through to get to england just to get this crappy council uh estate uh mm-hmm. flat or <laughs> you know semi-detached or whatever you want to call it um is uh you know it, it's just uh inconceivable to, to so many but uh but i find the film does that great balance of the real life horror and the psychological horror kind of meeting halfway and uh it's amazing that both this and uh saint maude are first time features uh interestingly enough and, and i found they both uh, did an amazing job with some very difficult material
0: oh for sure for sure you know I- I mean, I've spoken many times on our podcast here, Stephen, when we've talked about horror, gotten into horror. We haven't done a lot of horror. It's probably because I'm not really that much of a horror guy, generally. I'm not what you call a um, a hardcore. I, I'm not watching horror every, you know, frequently. Um, I tend to to steer towards the films that are very well received, well critically admired, um, and uh, and don't tend to to check out, you know, your average run-of-the-mill horror picture, but I, I, I do have a sense of what works. At least what works for me, and in order to deliver scares, a film like this needs great editing, which it really has. uh, From Julia Block is the editor, and a terrific sound department. Like the sound editing uh, and mixing needs to be just right to to get your you know get you the hair on the back of your neck to stand on end, and it has that as well. It is really amazingly done technically, Um, and then the conviction in the directing. Like clearly, this is a film that uh, Randy Weeks has had an, a vision for, and that is delivered 100%. Um, and it's just gorgeous to look at. It's a nightmare that's very well told. At, and at its center, these uh, performances, these actors are so good. It, and I never, for a moment, disbelieved what they were giving me in terms of of expressing what's going on with their experience here.
1: Yeah, the film is so well grounded in their sense of grief and loss and uh and and you know those those nightmares that are never going to go away and and that's what makes the current day events of the film uh so plausible and and so uh, so vivid and and yeah the, the bol and rial the, the two main uh characters are so well delineated and and their relationship is kind of ever shifting in the film too i i feel like their relationship to each other um which is is pretty tenuous <laughs> at the best of times is 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 pretty well uh Pretty well drawn out, and 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 they don't, you uh, you know, they don't try to sugarcoat anything. Like the, you know, these, these people are have a tough time relating to each other. I think uh, on 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 a good day, um, especially you know, so far out of their element and in such uh, strange and unusual surroundings, uh, and that just makes this kind of psychological. Uh, spiral that uh that bowl goes into uh, that much more palpable,
0: oh yeah yeah, and it's and it's funny it's different than saint Maud in that it's it's not trying to have us wonder about their psychological um state uh, or whether or not this is just something that's uh, you know this some sort of delusion like I think I think as an allegory, this is what makes his house Uh, as a film so powerful it's like you're we're really just getting a look into what might be lingering in people's hearts and heads from having gone through what they went through
1: yeah we feel like the ghosts have really come with them yeah. on their journey uh you know the the witch uh, character is, is is pretty frightening
0: as yeah. well yeah and we're not restricted to the house as well a lot of haunted house movies you know you stay on location i think that's why they're so popular it's like they're they're reasonably you control the environment you control the set and then you can have your character stuck there with the uh, antagonistic force whereas this film we flash back we flash out we go back to the sudan we we see the visions of you know stormy nights on the ocean and uh and all of that is is very transporting and very plausible and convincing in terms of the way they they put it together
1: yeah there's definitely a big world surrounding these characters and we're very aware of it throughout the film so definitely uh, definitely check this out and it is on netflix that is uh, where you're going to see it which makes it pretty easy to get a hold (music) of Hi, and welcome back to Lends Me Your Ears, the movie podcast that takes a look at new films available in theaters, if you're lucky, or somewhere on your tube or computer or wherever you're watching movies these days. And uh, we just talked about His House and St. Maud, two new British horror films available on uh, various platforms. But now we're going to delve into uh, some, some historical British uh, horror classics and semi-classics and not classics at all, <laughs> um, as we'll soon discover. But the horror genre, in a way, I mean, it's universal. I mean, every filmmaking culture makes a horror film of some description you got your hopping vampires in china you've got uh, a number of uh, you know mexican horror creations uh and, uh and south american and and of course in north america you know horror films uh, are kind of what helped build the studio system but britain i mean horror is kind of british in a way in the modern horror you've got mary shelley writing frankenstein bram stoker is irish but you know, British Isles, anyway. Uh, who wrote Dracula? So the, there's the two of the pillars of of the horror, um, classic horror genre, right there. And and they do have a unique way with it, uh, especially when they can kind of tie it into, you know, ancient culture of the Celts or what have you. And and uh, we we mentioned Wicker Man uh, earlier in the program. Uh, we, we're not going to talk about Wicker Man in depth because it's it's a film you should probably be aware of anyway. Uh, and I feel like it's come up on the program before, but it's it's an amazing film, if you haven't seen it, uh, and we're talking about the original, not the one with Nicolas Cage, but the one with Christopher (laughs) Lee and Edward Woodward, the equalizer himself, going to a remote Scottish island and uh, finding some some pagan, how should we say, uh, trouble (laughs) happening. (laughs) This segment, we're going to start with a, a film from the 1950s. It's called Curse of the Demon. It was retitled, uh, or it was actually Night of the Demon originally. It was retitled Curse of the Demon for the North American market, directed by Jacques Tourneur, a, a director who uh, went to work overseas. And here we find him working in England. But, uh, you know, he made maybe the best film noir out of the past with uh, Robert Mitchum. And uh, one of the best Hollywood horror films that didn't come from Universal, and that is Cat People, uh, which was done at RKO. Uh, on Very Little Money, one of the, Val, the great Val Luton horror movie, movies. So here he is working in England uh, with kind of a pagan magical theme for Night Slash Curse of the Demon. And uh, it's it's a remarkable film in that it invokes uh, a really terrifying monster. It's got Satanism and uh, it's it's got kind of a wry sense of humor all the while while characters are being cursed and being chased by this horrifying beast that comes out of the trees uh and uh
0: it's in the trees it's, in the it's trees. coming there we go that's uh i'll have to interject there just yes. because that particular line of dialogue was chosen by kate bush uh on her hounds of love song and rec of course there was the record her probably best known record from 1985 i never knew where that quote came from but it's i've been listening to it since i was a teenager and uh i got to hear it uh in this film which was was wonderful i mean I you know I understand why why Kate Bush likes this this movie. It has a lot of very Englishism, very Britishism kind of quality to it. It's uh, you know it, I, I'd heard that, that it was recut by producers who didn't like the ambiguity that the director wanted, which is that whether or not this was actual demonic force that was going on haunting <laughs> this place. And so they added a, a sort of demonic figure at the very beginning of the film, and then again at the very end. And it makes me wish that the director had won out because I think. It, I think some of that that those effects haven't aged as well as the rest of the film, but this is great stuff. I, I really enjoyed this kind of thing: the academic investigator who arrives in London at a conference to disprove the existence of demons and and the supernatural, and then finds that that there are some there's some stuff going on here that's that sort of that precursors to him. And, and uh, anyway, I don't want to give too much of the plot away, but it's. Um, it is there's a real potency here in the growing anxiety and the regular conflict between the scientific process and superstition you get a sense from the beginning where the filmmakers stand on the issue but there's some Terrific sets, great locations, lots of big gothic spaces and gloomy landscapes. I think maybe the only issue I really took with the film is that there is a bit of a brown face going on here with a, a white actor. But otherwise, this is uh, this is really cool. This is really cool and creepy stuff. You know, we we enter this fascinating
1: world uh, that Tenor lays out. And it's funny that, I mean, his skill as a film noir director and as a horror director both come into play here. I mean, the, there's a climax that makes amazing use of smoke and shadow and darkness and and uh it it's it's a really terrific build up to that as we go through this world of of fakers and uh satanists and table toppers and uh, table tappers and and uh, you know the skeptics and and it's you know it, it feels it feels kind of ahead of its time in that way and i just i just love the kind of combatant uh relationship between dana andrews who plays john holden our american skeptic and uh and Ni- Niall McGinnis, who plays Dr. Julian Carswell, who apparently is directly influenced by um, Alistair Crowley. Apparently, he's just supposed to be a fictionalized version of Alistair Crowley, who's got his kind of secret society of of uh, of Satan worshippers and... Prominent and uh, go- goatee. Yes, he's got the goatee. <laughs> and then there's a scene where he's entertaining the village children at his estate, dressed up as Bobo the Clown, which I just find... That that whole scene, I, I, it's just... Uh, It's just one of the highlights of the film, especially when the whole party for the kids goes horribly awry um, with some inclement weather that is possibly uh, demonically summoned, (laughs) that kind of thing. So there's a lot more going on in in this than there would have been at other horror films at the time. It certainly stands out amongst uh, 1950s horror films. I mean, genre movies were kind of moving into aliens and outer space and flying saucers. So it's good to see a well-grounded, 50s era horror film like night of the demon and uh turner uh you know really puts his uh, even though the film was altered to uh to his dismay uh, i find it still pretty effective
0: yeah, no, I'm with you there. Um, now we on this segment we have about I don't know four or five movies we want to talk about, and we're not. No, we, we're, yeah, it's yeah, going to be yeah. a challenge to get through them all. But let's let's give it a shot anyway, if if only briefly. Um, the next one on our list is "These Are the Damned" from 1962. This is directed by Joseph Losey, written by Evan Jones from a novel by H. L. Lawrence. Uh, an American named Simon Wells, played by McDonald Carey, sails into Bournemouth again, another seaside English town, where I guess horror takes root, uh, where he engages with a young woman who he thinks is a prostitute, Joan, played by Shirley Ann Field. Uh, Turns out she's the sister of the leader of a pretty unthreatening teddy boy biker gang, who like to sing and whistle in close harmony. Their leader, King, is played by a way over-the-top Oliver Reed. Now, Joan does end up with Simon on the boat, and they spend the night together and cross paths with a few uniformed folks, a couple of James Bond veteran actors here, James Villiers and Walter Gottel, and uncover a secret operation where children are being conditioned to survive a forthcoming nuclear war. All this while a sculptor, played by Vivica Linfors, and a government scientist, Alexander are working out the bumps in their relationship this is a film where i really like the location cinematography i really got a good sense of the town and the harbor and a lot of the elements of production design there's a larger than life quality Um, there's a a scene towards the end with helicopters that reminded me nothing more of than james cameron and true lies oh wow like this large scale use of these of this equipment i thought was really well done like it just felt it felt big in a way that a lot of films, low-budget films, don't. But I thought the drama was a bit wet. Oh. <laughs> yeah, I just felt the acting was really laughable, especially Reed is terrible in this. He just he practically chews on his knuckles. So, yeah, some of the theatrical tone really left me cold. I I have a
1: certain fondness for Reed, and, and you're right. I mean, But whenever – when was Reed not over the top? <laughs> you know, I mean uh, – he, he you know some people can chew the scenery he turns it into a complete smorgasbord uh, and here's the the biker who's weirdly fixated on his sister this this weird incestuous jealousy that drives him to you know fits of madness or whatever <laughs> i find it you know it's kind of in his wheelhouse but you're right it's maybe not a style that uh that is in has been in fashion for a long time <laughs> but 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 you know reed is your guy yeah.
0: for for that it's kind like of thing nicholas cage must be a fan
1: yeah i would think so yeah, <laughs> maybe i should rewatch vampire kiss vampire's kiss and, mm-hmm. um see if i can find some oliver reed in that but I, I i do like the the kind of nuclear era paranoia that infuses this film it's 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 kind of i mean it's we, we we talked about this before we started taping it's not really a horror film it's more got that of slightly futuristic sci-fi uh thing with the the kids in their underground bunker you know they're not allowed to see the outside because they're being kept um aside in case of a of a nuclear holocaust that they will repopulate the earth i guess because they've they've been specially raised um for for such a purpose uh but but there are horrifying elements to it all and i find i actually found the kids kind of interesting and charming which is not always the case with with kids in in and, and I, I do like the, the the biker gang, you know, because it's a British biker gang, you know, the, the hooligans versus actual like Hell's Angels, you know, who would win in a fight. I think it's pretty, pretty obvious. But it, I, I also like the fact that, you know, this jo- Joseph Losey, the director, I mean, who would normally be making kind of prestige pictures, another blacklisted director who did a lot of work in England and Europe uh, in the 50s and 60s. Um, so he's working. He's kind of slumming in, like. With this material compared to like a Joseph Losey film, but he's working with Hammer films. So for Hammer, it's a prestige picture because it's, it's obviously it's shot on location, which is not always the case with Hammer films. They're usually fairly studio bound and here it's all on location. Uh, So it doesn't look anything like uh, your average Hammer horror film. And, uh, and, and Losey is an, uh, enough of a hand, uh, with the director that he keeps things moving along and keeps the story pretty gripping. Um, and, you know, obviously Oliver Reed is not an actor who can be readily controlled by any director, I don't think, uh. But you know, I, I I do find it's an interesting film. Uh, it's it is not the horror film that it was marketed as. If you look at the posters for it, it has these creepy kids right out of uh, Village of the Damned. But it is, and there are parallels, I suppose. But it is not that film, and uh, and it should be approached with a different mindset.
0: <laughs> yeah, I would go along with that. Um, now, another film on our list to discuss is something called The Asfix. A-S-P-H-Y-X from 1972. This is a film I'd never heard of until a couple of weeks ago. Uh, I was listening to a podcast on Empire Podcast, which is one of my favorites. Um, and it they had Edgar Wright on talking, chatting with Quentin Tarantino. And they had both been given a list of British films Beloved by Martin Scorsese, and they were sharing that list, and the asphyx was on it. And they were talking about how much they appreciated this film. It's also known as *Spirit of the Dead* and *The Horror of Death*. I think the Asfix is a better title, yeah. just because it's a little more unique. But it's the interesting. I I look at the idea of spirit photography, the concept based on an actual Victorian practice, photography of people dying in an effort to try and see some element of the spirit leaving the body, and uh, in this. This particular case, it's also an effort to try to capture the departure of the spirit or, or um, the spiritual forces around the body when it dies. So scientist Sir Hugo Cunningham, played by Robert Stevens, deducts that, or deduces that the smudges he sees on his photographs and even on footage of his early film camera is actually the spirit of death, an asphyx, that haunts people who are about to die. When his much younger lover dies along with his son in a somewhat ridiculous boating accident, he sees that smudge again because his his camera was set up there, and uh, he sees a full-on apparition when a man is about to be hanged. Now, Cunningham uses this booster device to capture the asphyx of a guinea pig and then aims to snare a human version with of the same spirit, it's the, the the plot is is a little convoluted, but it's actually really interesting stuff. It's as much a tale of mad science as it is horror, with threads going back, of course, to Frankenstein. Um, I I really, I mean, aside from some '70s sort of budgetary issues and lighting things that I don't think do, do it a lot of favors, I found the it, the film itself to be really fresh and interesting. Yeah,
1: it's it's a really unique film for its time. Oddly enough, uh, director Peter Newbrook, I think it's his only feature um prior to this he was David Lean's camera operator huh. on some pretty major films certainly Bridge on the River Kwai and I think even Lawrence of Arabia and uh and but he also took a lot of low budget cinematography uh assignments uh, there's some really really odd films where he was behind the camera so he you know he went from these prestige pictures working with Lean to you know directing or sorry doing cinematography for some stuff on the side in between, I guess while waiting for lean to line up his next project. And then, you know, he took on this one project of his own and you know, it's marked by some really interesting performances and, and a great concept. And, and, and plus that, that Victorian setting that, that, uh, you know, that, that really only works, I guess, in a, in a British film, that, that kind of retro, um, horror thing that, um, you know, and like, until, until the witch came along, um, you know, in the States, there weren't a lot of American, uh, North American horror films that could operate well in a historic kind of aspect. I find here it does work really well. Um, you know, we've interesting cast with uh, Robert Stevens, who might be best known for playing Sherlock Holmes in Billy Wilder's The Private Life of Sherlock Holmes. He gives a great performance here, just subtly sh- shaded the way it goes from being kind of a, a sympathetic character. We're kind of on board with his... Uh, enthusiasm for his uh discovery and then it just you know it just he just and he he both he and the script kind of dial up the the creepiness of it all uh, as he's like becomes more and more obsessed with finding eternal life through trapping this asphyx um in a sealed uh, brass container and then uh, ultimately not done you know never dying um once you've done that so uh it was a great performance by him and um and I, yeah, I just uh, find it a, a, a kind of an offbeat film that that serves its concept pretty well. Aside from, like you say, the boat accident, which, <laughs> and then he's watching the footage of it, and then there's a cut in the footage that was obviously filmed with a single camera that couldn't have possibly happened. So, I'm, <laughs> I'm sure that's already been written up in IMDb goofs about a dozen times. But but um, you know, th- there are some some. Budgetary uh, drawbacks, and you're right about some of the lighting. Some of the, when it is kind of studio bound, it, it does that kind of flat look, which is kind of weird coming from a guy, a director who is a cinematographer and and camera operator. But but uh, aside from that, uh, it's you know it really commits to its its uh, subject matter and uh, and it looks great. On the budget that they had, like I find that just it's a rich-looking
0: film and and uh, well-populated with lots of British characters. Mm-hmm. Oh, for sure, for sure. So now, Stephen, where do we go from here? We we've got a couple other on our list that we want to discuss, and I, I maybe pass it over to you to decide which ones we we <laughs> should we should get to. I know you 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 like uh, you you. Well, we both saw Countess Dracula. I was not particularly a fan. I thought it was pretty turgid. Um, but we well, also <laughs> <laughs> we also watched Deathline, aka Raw meat, uh, which I thought was actually pretty fascinating. But wh- what do you think? What do we? What do we want to talk about? Well, I, maybe maybe I'd just say that I
1: like Countess Dracula a fair bit. It's it's a little uh, a notch above some of the other Hammer movies that were coming out in the early seventies. Uh, interesting director Peter Sazdi, who hails from I believe Romania, um, directing a story about Elizabeth Bathory, uh, who's the the famous um, woman who uh, supposedly bathed in the blood of of slaughtered virgins to maintain eternal youth. Uh, so of course this one takes that idea and runs with it. Um, with Ingrid Pitt in the title title role. It was the first hammer I ever saw in a theater. So I have a, I have a nostalgic fondness for it, which may uh, overwhelm my common sense as far as quality <laughs> films go. But I like Ingrid Pitt uh, quite a bit. Um, prior to this, she had been in uh, Where Eagles Dare. Uh, and for some reason, she's dubbed by another actor in this film, which is much to her consternation. I don't think she discovered it until the premiere. And she was quite upset about it. And, you know, she, she does have, she's Polish, so she would have had a bit of an accent which would have suited the character, so it's kind of funny there. But I, I find for a Hammer film, it's it's pretty rich in production design. It's got a lot of interesting elements uh, like the the you know the gypsy dancers and so on that 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 uh, lifted up a little bit above some of its contemporaries. But as you say, it's. Um, it's pretty much of a potboiler, I guess. Uh, with uh, that doesn't, and it's not as horrific as it promises either. It tends to shy away from some of the more horrific aspects of the story, which probably is not in its favor. But uh, yeah. I, I like Pitt, and
0: I like you know, seeing that Elizabeth Bathory story brought to life. I mean, the costumes I liked, I, I think the, the old lady makeup is some of the worst in cinema history. Like she just <laughs> does not, it's unconvincing, <laughs> but yeah, anyway. All right. So, so but yeah, so, let's, let's go to the raw meat slash
1: dead death line because it is such a unique, unusual film. And, uh, it's another one that comes up repeatedly, uh, on, like Edgar Wright on those list of British films. I think it was on there of the British films that you should see. Um, And he's, he's been very enthusiastic in the past. I think he hosts the trailer from hell entry for, uh, for raw meat. And, uh, it's, it's just, uh, it's your basic, it's like an early version of Chud, basically. It's about a cannibal, uh, who lives in the London tube, uh, abandoned London tube stations and, and uh tram lines and uh it's and that's basically it that's that's the concept behind it and uh you know we've got donald pleasance as as the detective it's great to see donald pleasance in a a lead role especially around this time you know prior to halloween and and so on and it's a great concept that, that sometimes uh is let down by its budget um it's got sort of bad location sound throughout which i find a little distracting um but uh but it's, it's done with a lot of gusto, and it's got a great soundtrack, too. So I find that uh, – and it's just kind of such an offbeat uh, subject that it, it kind of kept me going through the film.
0: Yeah, it has sort of a tone to it that I really liked. I guess I, I found that, yeah, some of the underground stuff with the cannibal was a bit gross, and the, the makeup yes. is is actually very convincingly unpleasant. But uh, I really liked – I'd recommend it just on, for unpleasantness's presence. He's, he's – uh, he's very grumpy as this investigator and he treats everyone around him pretty badly, but, uh, but he also is very charismatic. I'm not sure what it was about that guy, but he, he's really good here. And, um, I, I, there's some strange, like there's long, long takes where, where the camera will just sit as people walk in and out of, uh, like down long hallways. And, um, it's, it is, it's, it's an interesting, I think it's a curiosity. And of all the movies we're talking about today, that's the one that is the most peculiar. I feel like it might be the most polarizing too. And it's on Criterion right now in
1: in, uh, their 70s horror lineup. So if you want to see it in a a really nice copy, maybe even better than my MGM DVD, check it out there.
0: Hi, I'm Lindsay Cameron Wilson, host of The Food Podcast. But do you know what? It's not just about food, it's about people. And
1: their stories shared through the lens of food. The Food Podcast has been described as an audible fairy tale. How about that? You can find us on iTunes and Stitcher. So come join us, we would love to share our stories with you.
0: You're listening to Lends Me Your Ears, the film podcast, and today we're talking about British horror going back a ways. Uh, We've... We've, we've talked, we started with uh, His House and St. Maude, but we are now uh, we've gone back into the past as well and as we are wont to do. And uh, now we're, we're uh, we've are we got in our third segment, we've got a few more films to discuss. Um, one that didn't quite fit in the last one, which is from the 70s and, and deserves to be considered anyways, Legend of Hell House. This is a film that that I, rem- I think I've seen before. You know, you, we watch as many movies as we do. It's sometimes, especially ones that we might have seen when we were kids. Or young people, it's like what? What was? Well, you know, there's elements that look familiar. Maybe it was on TV, and you'd watch part of it, and that's how I felt about Legend of Hell House. Or it could be just because it's it's very it's it's not the most original film or original concept, but it is actually pretty cool. It's it's one of those uh, you know scientists investigate the. Mount Everest of haunted houses, you, you, <laughs> I, I say that with, uh, you know, uh, quotes, uh, finger quotes um, about, uh, yeah, this 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 potentially very uh, unpleasant place. And they spent some time there. And sure enough, it's weird, terrible things. Uh, start to happen, and and people we discover that people previous residents had killed themselves, and there had been all sorts of bad behavior. And and if if that if the spirit of that bad behavior had ended, we would not be here. Is one of the lines I think Roddy McDowell says. Uh, he's he's of course great in this. Um, but Stephen, this is uh, maybe one of your uh, one more more favorite uh, film of yours. So maybe you want to you want to take it and see see you know tells people tell the people about what it's about.
1: Yeah, I have a real fondness for this one it's uh based on a story by richard matheson and uh i believe he also had a hand in the screenplay and um it's yeah it's supremely creepy it it's it's easy to get it mixed up with the haunting um from which is from a decade before the robert wise uh black and white haunted house film they're very similar um in that you know the the spirits that uh, haunt this house uh have this control over the people who come to investigate it, uh, f- with, um, with devastating circumstances. They're very similar. Um, in fact, the haunting is based on a novel called the Shirley Jackson book, uh, the haunting of Hill house. And here we have the legend of hell house. So it's, <laughs> I, I, they kind of blur together in my mind, but, uh, this one I, f- I find is it's not quite as good as the, the haunting is such a great movie and it is so well shot and so atmospheric, but, but there's a lot going on here to like, and it, it just moves along. Uh, you, you think these people being in this house um, over the Christmas holidays—basically, it's a Christmas movie. Um, you know, it would, would kind of, uh, kind of drag. But the, but the, the, the horrors that it unleashes over the course of the film are, are, are pretty captivating. And, and it, again, we have a connection to alistair crowley it's the belasco house which was the scene of great depravity and and it's sort of implied that belasco is kind of a stand-in for crowley just like uh in uh, night of the demon um with Na McGinness's character and uh you know there's such a disparate group of of people trying to get to the bottom of what's going wrong in this house and i just i just love that combination and Roddy mcdowell is great he's he gets lots of great lines and really uh really swings to the fences with his character as well, who's previously, um, you know, almost killed by this house and the spirit that dwelt within. And, uh, it, you know, if you like, uh, if you like a good haunted house movie, this is, uh, this is definitely one of the, I'd say in the top five anyway.
0: Well, I, yeah, I did. It was fun to revisit. And, uh, but, uh, but yeah, it, it did. it strange. seems strangely familiar. <laughs> I can't put my finger on why. Uh, anyway, so so uh, let's move on about 20 years or so to Dog Soldiers from 2002, directed by Neil Marshall, who's carved out an interesting career as a genre director this is his first film, which he swiftly followed with three entertaining efforts all of which that I could recommend The Descent, Doomsday, and Centurion, after that he did some work on TV shows like Game of Thrones and Westworld uh, maybe not the most original voice, but He's passionate, and you can tell he really loves what he does. I I haven't seen his most recent film, The Reckoning, but I will say that his version of Hellboy was not good. No, but I don't know that anybody could have really uh, taking that out of the hands
1: of Del Toro. I think is is going to suffer by comparison. And yeah, uh, you know, for a first effort, I mean, The Descent is a much better film than Dog Soldiers. But I I, I did like this kind of gung ho aliens meets werewolves kind of thing and that's basically it's aliens meets werewolves i mean that's that's really the the cell line for this film and i i don't know that it has ambitions much beyond that in fact it even swipes scenes, just like d- shots are directly swiped out of aliens I, I guess they just figured they might as well go for it um but uh i, th- I think because it's got a good cast liam cunningham uh you know an, an irish actor who's been around for yonks and another he, game of thrones another engine. game of thrones and, and yeah and and um and the, the director worked on Game of Thrones as mm-hmm. well. And, and uh, Sean Pertwee, who I think probably did some time on Game of Thrones as well, son of Doctor Who, John Pertwee, he shows up as the tough sergeant. Liam Cunningham is the devious black ops uh, officer who's hiding, who knows more than he's letting on. And uh, it, it basically devolves into a siege movie as all these uh, soldiers who were on maneuvers are... Um, in a in a remote scottish farmhouse that's being attacked by werewolves and and that's kind of that's where it goes and you know there are some twists along the way but um you know i i thought it was at least an energetic and enthusiastic take on on the werewolf film that uh you know paid tribute to some of the classic laws of werewolf uh Dumb, as well as uh, playing around with them, which is you know the best you can hope for, I suppose.
0: Yeah, I, I agree with you there. I, I would say that that it has a scrappy, low-budget enthusiasm and occasional humor, but uh, I didn't particularly like it. I wondered why Emma Clevesby's Megan, who is the the person who has that farm, why she sports a skin-tight tank top for the whole movie. Uh, there's a whole like assault and pre 13 thing going on, which I appreciate, but um, the werewolves aren't scary. They look like tall dudes with wolf hats. And, uh, you know, there's moments like where Megan's border collie chews on the guts of one soldier while the other one throws up on the captain's <laughs> head. I'm just like, what did an eight year old write this? like it just there there's there's stuff that just feels really pretty lame. um and i I couldn't quite forgive it for for that while while I did understand, I did appreciate the enthusiasm of everyone involved in this. so um yeah, but uh, you know, if you want to talk about uh, a film that really impressed that came out. Uh, in that year of 2002, let's talk about 28 Days Later, which I don't really know if we need to say too much about, because of course most people will recognize and know that film. Danny Boyle and Alex Garland's zombie picture basically reinvented the genre, um, you know, or that subgenre, and into and and brought to to the world fast zombies. You know, you've got. Uh, that typically jittery Boyle editing style and the soundtrack indebted to 90s alt-rock sounds which may seem a little dated now but it, the film still is absolutely terrifying uh, you know that opening segment with Killian Murphy wandering through empty London is just iconic it made him into a star and there's great work here from Naomi Harris Brendan Gleeson and Christopher Eccleston yeah and it's a film that you don't really know where it's going and it takes a turn in the last act as well with the the military arriving uh speaking of military um that that uh that really uh that changes it in in a way that makes i mean that's a film i've seen many times and i never i never tire of
1: yeah it's it really works on uh the intensity of it all i mean boyle obviously by this time you know he's already a skilled filmmaker at train spotting and um shallow grave amongst other things and uh you know, here there's a, it, it has this kind of grainy video-y kind of look to it that just makes it that much more urgent and and uh, of its time. And uh, it, it really just grips you right from the get-go. Yeah, like you say, the Fast Zombies. Apparently Boyle doesn't like to think of it as a zombie film, uh, but... What else? Could yeah. you, I yeah. mean, if you watch it, that's just what you're going to think of it as. I, I guess they're not technically undead. They're just infected. Um, and so maybe he thinks of it as more of a plague film with this berserker rage-inducing um, disease that's going around. Brendan Gleason is great. Um it's you know I I remember I was rewatching it and I forgot all the people that turn up. Oh, Brendan Gleeson is in this, in this great. Um you know he's always uh, great to watch and he he plays this very friendly father who also has to be a fierce um berserker fighter. Um and uh you know that really uh plays on our sympathies in a big way and and this this film yeah it really i mean, i remember when it came out it kind of like you say redefined the genre and of course uh, the films that followed had to really kind of follow in its footsteps and very few have kind of lived up to it and uh as uh, as all things uh, often do it does have a sequel um 28 weeks uh yeah 28 weeks later and uh, Revi- I hadn't seen that since it came out, and revisiting it, it's a uh, it's a surprisingly worthy sequel. Uh, Boyle um, sat back, and uh, as a producer, he didn't want to direct it, uh, so he handed over the reins to a, a director who I believe is from Spain, Juan Carlos Fresnadillo, and it's still pretty effective. Uh, you know, obviously, it's uh, the the original uh, Berserkers have. Kind of starved to death, I guess. Somehow that the that uh, the 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 safe the the non-infected humans have been able to be quarantined off, if they weren't killed off um, from the berserkers in London, and and the the uh, I, either the American military or NATO, I guess, has stepped in to kind of lock down the area and try and restore order. But of course, uh, nothing goes as planned. And in this case, we have uh, train spotting uh, veteran Robert Carlyle as. Um, you know, a dad concerned for his kids, but he's also, he's also filled with guilt for having abandoned his wife uh, in the first early opening scenes uh, where a farmhouse is attacked and the, everybody inside is turned into berserker uh, food. And uh, so he's dealing with guilt and uh, that kind of translates into his actions later on in the film. But but I thought it, it was an effective uh, follow-up with some interesting ideas and, and some, <laughs> some amazing actors that show up in, in, uh, in roles along the
0: way. It was, it was a, it's, a, it's
1: kind of a time capsule in a way, but also uh, works uh, to extend the story.
0: Yeah, I I was surprised how much I enjoyed it revisiting it for the first time since it came out in 2007. And as you say, you know, actors like Imogen Poots, um, the unfortunately named Macintosh Muggleton, they, they play uh, Carlisle's kids uh, who are also both very good. Um, there's there's also some interesting ideas that like the idea that one character is a carrier of the virus, but also immune to its symptoms, which means that their, uh, you know, biological offspring might also have that. That uh, that very important, um, you know, skill or, or ability too I guess, uh, you know, this is important for epidemiologists, as we have learned, <laughs> to, you know, in the past year, very much so it's also got big Dris Elba as the american general stone we don't see much of him but he's there and jeremy renner as an american sniper uh and rose byrne who's a scientist working with the american military there's there's um there's some plot issues i wondered about uh i was watching it but the the direction is really well done it it does a great job using london locations and sort of a post-apocalyptic vibe to it a lot of great aerial footage um and uh yeah and there's some dark corners of human behavior you mentioned you know the loving husband who who abandons his wife when faced with certain death that made me think a little bit of ruben Ostlin's force majeure you know it's, it's working with some of those mm-hmm. same issues in a very different kind of movie um yeah it's it's good enough that i'm actually a little sad there was never a 28 months later or 28 years later but who knows you know it could still happen uh boyle says he has a concept for a third film but i think that's as far as
1: he's gotten but he, he has said that he, he's had ideas for I guess 28 months later at some point and maybe after this past year that we've had maybe he's got some more ideas mm-hmm. <laughs> to flesh that out so you never know we could see it happen um, maybe not directed by him but maybe produced and co-written or something it could happen down the road, we'll never yeah. know.
0: Yeah. Um, so uh, as we wrap things up here on Lends Me Your Ears look at British horror, uh, In Fabric from 2017 is very much worth mentioning. Written and directed by Peter Strickland, who is a, a really unusual filmmaker. I was a fan of his Duke of Burgundy for its peculiar Baroque sensibility. But that film skated past the broadly camp laughs that this follow-up wraps its in its arms and gives a loving hug. Uh, it's, it is about... A Haunted Dress. Uh, Sheila, played by Marianne Jean-Baptiste, is a lonely 50-something divorcee living with her art school son, uh, Jagan Aye, who invites his girlfriend over, Uh, Gwen, played by an unrecognizable Gwendolyn Christie, to their modest home on the regular. Now, it's based apparently on the fashion and interstitial stills of magazine sales ads and set in the late 1970s, I'd have to guess, although it's a little uh, ambiguous about that. Uh, newspaper personals are still a thing, and Sheila is dating, looking for someone new in her life. She buys the red dress, but then discovers it was worn by a model played by Sidza Babette Knudsen, who fans of Borgen will, will certainly recognize. But she subsequently passed away, and there is that evil spirit going on there. It's it is uh, It is really, really a fun, weird little movie. A- anti-consumerist commentary creeps in, as well as workplace satire. And uh, yeah, I I uh, I mean, it's not going to be for everybody, that's for sure. But it does meander in some inexplicable territory. But there's so much to enjoy here.
1: Yeah, and and like a midway twist that you don't really see coming, and then the story goes off in a completely new direction, which I really enjoyed that uh, element of it. And uh, and Strickland is is kind of. You know, working in his 70s Euro horror obsessions, you know, cranked to 11 uh, throughout the film. You know, the, more than one review called it Suspiria set in a de- dress shop. Um, it definitely owes a debt to people like uh, Dario Argento and Mario Bava and so on. And it is gorgeous, gorgeously shot. It's a beautiful film. Uh, he, he is, uh, you know, certainly one of the most visually interesting directors uh going these days you see it in in duke of burgundy and uh barbarian uh, sound studio his uh his second film which is also worth uh worth tracking down and also very indebted to the world of euro horror it's in fact set in the world of euro horror here he kind of tempers that obsession a little bit but uh but certainly that it's 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 that classic kind of monkey's paw cursed object um kind of storyline i mean we've seen it so many times over the years you know even in films like christine uh based on the stephen king novel or or um you know the Annabella movies maybe you know the, the the cursed doll or whatever here it's a cursed dress which you know which which you think would be the most harmless thing in the world and yet he makes it completely evil this this uh, red dress which apparently the color it's uh, it's artery red apparently is the official color oh, of the of the dress and uh it, it sort of wreaks havoc in unexpected and unusual ways and and this film uh, just kept on surprising me which was which was really wonderful to experience
0: And that brings us to the end of our look at British horror uh, for this episode of Lensmere Ears, the film podcast. Yeah, that was a lot of fun and uh, very weird in places. And, you know, it was a little bit of a mixed bag for me, but I still really enjoyed the, the journey. So my name is Karsten Knox. I am a film writer and my blog is Flaw in the Iris. When And my Twitter handle is also Flaw in the Iris. And my
1: name is Stephen Cook, and you can find me online at at ns underscore s-c-o-o-k-e that is me on twitter and uh, i also enjoyed this uh trip down um horrific lane <laughs> Yeah, it was great to be back in the studio talking about these crazy films back it,
0: here at CKDU. Indeed, yes. And CKDU, as we mentioned earlier, is uh, the sun, the sustainer drive is on between um, the, is the 11th to the 20th of, yes, March. of March. So if you're listening to this uh, before then or during then, then you should visit their website and uh, and consider donating some, uh, some cash.
1: www.ckdu.ca backslash donate. That's how you can support CKDU during the... Sustainer drive.
0: And we are also on Twitter at Lensmere Ears. We have a Facebook page called Lensmere Ears. Many, many thanks to CKDU for all they do and for providing the studio facilities and for airing this show every second Tuesday at 5.30. And thanks to our producers at the Village Soundcast Network for making us sound good. We'll be uh, watching movies and talking to you again soon. Thank you so much for listening.